is The Next Trip Podcast with aviation insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other app geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 107, operating on December 13th, 2021. This is Drew and I'm here with my fellow industry insider Doug. We're two app geeks creating a network for airline, airplane, airport, and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. Doug, this is going to be a great episode, first of all, because this is like a real-life situation where all four of us on this podcast are extremely tired from our airline work weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's not acting. <laughs> this is real. It's going to be a great episode. We have two guests this week. Both are pilots, but have experienced a completely different side of aviation from you and me and the and the passenger airlines. They're from the cargo world. They are. And Drew, we've talked a lot about cargo on the show. In fact, we went up to Alaska in May to watch cargo airplanes land overnight, which I know I've talked to both of our guests about that. And I think that we're absolutely crazy for, for doing that. But this is our first time actually welcoming car- cargo pilots on the podcast. Today, we're talking to Matt, my good friend and former boss. Matt is a retired Air Force pilot who flew 747s at a mid-sized cargo company for a year before getting hired at a major cargo company earlier this year, actually in August, right, Matt? August, July? Yeah, started August 5th. Yep. You just got qualified on the 777. We're going to talk a lot about that and your previous job because you had some pretty cool airplanes that you flew. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for having your quick nap and... Staying awake for the podcast is just an hour. So, oh yeah, Matt. We also have Steve, or is it Steven? Which do you prefer? Because your Instagram name is confusing. I I always tell people whatever you prefer, uh, Steve or Steven doesn't matter to me. If you call my parents' place looking for me, you should say Steven because uh, my mom hates when people call me Steve. But uh, I don't I don't mind uh, Steve Steven. A lot of people call me by my last name too. Just before the show, we were talking about how small a world it is, especially the aviation world. Matt is on the show. And Doug, you guys both worked in Fairfield. That's where I grew up. Three of us on the show have time in Fairfield. Stephen, who just came on the show, we both went to San Jose State. And we both have a friend, uh, a common friend. And this, I have never met you or I, I don't know you from anywhere. Same school and same friend. It's such a small world. Yeah. So Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Steve began his career at a regional airline before moving over to the cargo world, also flying 747s at a mid-sized cargo company for several years before coming back to the commercial side, where he now flies the 737 or the guppy at a major airline. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. You know, the 777 engine is as big as the fuselage in the 737. You know, they say that, but I don't know if I believe that because I see people standing in front of it. I'm trying to imagine an aisle and six seats in that engine. I don't believe yeah. it. I, I'm gonna have to. I don't know. It's <laughs> science, Drew. That's what I've been told. It's the measurements. Uh, all I know is I could stand. I could stand in it, and if I stood on the bottom of the the engine cowling, my head would be at the at the center pylon. So it's about twelve feet. Okay. From the bottom to the top. Yeah. Matt and Steve, we can't wait to hear from both of you about the cargo world and how you got into aviation. But first, let's talk about our weeks. Drew, how was the hub? Uh, it was a horrible week. It's, it wasn't horrible because of the operation. It was horrible because of all the meetings getting ready for a snow <laughs> event that didn't happen. So I think the, the meetings and the preparation were worse than the actual event, which was supposed to happen today. We were supposed to get snow flurries for our main 8 a.m. bank. We got nothing. But the meetings beforehand, this is our first event. So it's so excruciating because we have to think about everything. 
Do we have brooms for the ice melt? How much ice melt do we have? How much glycol do we have? Did we talk to the airport about clearing out the parking areas so that we can de-ice in those areas? Then we get to the event and it's a total non-event. So I came in this morning, which is my day off. I worked yesterday and it's really true. It's like, you know, you work for an airline when you, it's nighttime when you're going to work and it's nighttime when you're leaving work. And that's, that was my whole week. It was horrible (laughs) in terms of sleep schedule and my life, but in terms of the operation, it was fine because it was a whole sleeper event with no snow. How about yours, Doug? Before we get to mine, would you rather go in and have all hell break loose or would you rather go in and and have prep for something that doesn't happen? I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't want all hell to break loose because it's our first event. So I wouldn't want the station to fall flat, but I would have wanted something so that we can get the trucks moving and get the fluids flowing and make sure everything works. It was kind of funny because on the express side, they call and and they say out of their 10 trucks, two were down. It's like, how are they down? We haven't haven't done anything. (laughs) That's what happens every year when they warm up the trucks and get things going. Some of them don't start. That was good because we found those. So when we have a real event, those trucks will be working. I would have liked it if we had some snowfall so we could get our processes all ironed up. My week, Drew, what did I do over the weekend? What, What airplane did I go back to in a way? What airplane did you go back to? Yeah. You were I, always on the 737. No, but I had my... Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you went uh, virtually back to the DC-10. I did, yeah. I had my refresher sim for the KC-10 so I can stay qualified, and I'll probably have my first flight next month. Drew and, and Matt, you're a pre- previous KC-10 guy. You'll appreciate this. I loved that airplane while I was flying it. It was such a great airplane. But once I got a peek inside how how the, the, the big boys and girls operate and actually, <laughs> like new age equipment and i know it's funny saying that the 737 is new age equipment but i went from and i didn't realize like how tiny our navigation equipment was when i went from literally a heading and attitude indicator that's like the size of a baseball to last night i flew a max and it's the size of like a big screen tv going back to that little baseball Mm -hmm. display I was like, wait a minute, where where are my screens? What What is this? Not having verti- vertical navigation capabilities and having to do these crazy approaches down to minimums in a snow condition. I was like, this is just downright dangerous, guys. Like, we should not be doing <laughs> this right now. Where is my... Where's my backup? Where's my automation? <laughs> I always find it funny that during our training in, in my current company and my last company, they made such a big deal about non-precision approaches as if they were hard. And we have VNAV and all this other stuff. I was like, I don't, I'm not seeing why this is difficult. Yeah. And it's probably because yeah, that's what you did for you 20 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, this is like an ILS. This is no problem. Yeah. But Doug, if you want to feel at home, you could just look up to the overhead console on the 737, which is the same as 1968. There was just so many times in that sim. It was two four-hour events over the weekend. There were, there were times uh, on the first day where I was sitting there and I couldn't remember the name of the checklist that we were supposed to run. And I peeked over my shoulder at what the engineer was holding. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, uh, full stop taxi back checklist, please. And he started to run it. But in my mind, it was like, is it the abbreviated before takeoff checklist? Like I just, it, it had been six months since I had flown and I have all this 737 stuff going through my mind. I was actually worried about it. It turned out to be fine. It was totally safe. And, and that's what the Sims are, are there for to get me spun back up to fly it. But yeah, it was it was a stressful event going back to this plane that I had flown for 10 years <laughs> after being on the 737 so much. All right, Matt, 
Yeah, you are sitting where and where did you come from? (laughs) Where are you going? What time is it? What's going on? So I'm sitting in Anchorage right now uh, and the the Captain Cook and flew through the night. So we took off out of our main hub at about four in the morning and got here to Anchorage at about eight o'clock local time. So I took a couple of hours and a half before before this thing started and I'm heading out to go westbound kind of a globe circling event so i'm gonna bounce around asia for about a week and then i'll head to paris and liege and then come back to uh main hub and go home and i'll get home thankfully as a as a junior guy it's a big deal i get to come home for christmas and oh that's years, awesome so i felt pretty lucky about that and of course i could get extended but well, you're, I, i've got a question though <laughs> you're in alaska and your blinds are closed in your hotel room why why is that yeah you don't get any sun you don't get any daylight up there the two hours of light right now (laughs) oh oh man we're ruining your two hours of daylight it's 18 degrees out so i'm I'm happy to be inside right now (laughs) steve how was your week you were in belize i believe right yeah, I went to Belize. My, my I just had a three day trip, Belize and Austin. Belize was cool just because I'd never been there before and definitely very different from I think what most of our layovers are at, at this airline in terms of uh the just where the hotel is situated and, and kind of the 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 places you are able to go outside of the hotel, in addition to having I think I sent you the uh, the video of uh, walking out of my hotel room and facing the pool, which was like 20 feet away. There was a party going on there. Yeah. A lot of noise. <laughs> it was a very interesting place and uh, had a great time there. Definitely not the like vacation paradise that I think people go there for in terms of where we were staying. Mm. It, was a, it was a good experience uh, for, you know, just for cultural uh, education, I guess. Steve's Belize experience makes me realize mm-hmm. or, or be thankful, I guess, that because, you know, I could have gotten that Belize trip and I was disappointed about right. it. I'm a little less disappointed now after yeah. seeing Steve, <laughs> after seeing Steve talk about it in the videos that he sent. Are, are the loads any good going down there uh, with the COVID and Omicron and all that stuff? No. Well, Belize doesn't really have much of a COVID uh, restriction you have to i think either show your vaccination card crew members don't have to show anything right regular passengers have to show uh, i think a vaccination card or a negative test when they go through customs yeah we were full going both directions people people are going down there for sure weather was great uh, a little bit of a red flag when we were eating dinner on the patio and the, the waiter just casually put a uh, a can of bug spray on the table for us <laughs> and i noticed i was we're sitting in a cloud of mosquitoes. Oh, God. <laughs> Matt and Steve, our listeners love to hear how our guests got into aviation. You both have differing, ba- differing backgrounds, but ultimately ended up in the same place at a major carrier. How did you get there? You know, it's funny, uh, you know, listen to Doug. He's been dreaming about flying probably since birth. And I always thought airplanes were cool, but I didn't think of it as a career until I was in college. I was Air Force ROTC at I mean, I, I did Air Force ROTC because I wanted to uh, pay for school. I went to school at Notre Dame, and my dad looked at me and said, I'm not paying for this, <laughs> so I've, I found a way. <laughs> I did Air Force ROTC and, and kind of fell into, I got medically qualified for a pilot slot, and I thought, well, that sounds fun, and <laughs> did soaring one year uh, uh, after my freshman year in college. It was a glider program up at the academy, and that was like my first taste where I was like, 
this is kind of cool, you know, <laughs> and that was, oh, so you kind of fell into it. Yeah. Uh, unpowered glider thing, you know, and then went to pilot training and, uh, you know, the one thing I did know is I wanted to fly big airplanes uh, around the world. I, I, you know, I thought that if I'm going to fly airplanes, I want to, I want to do it with people and I want to do it around the world. Casey 10 was actually my first choice out of pilot training. And I had a great time for a 20 year career in the air force. Doug can attest that our, that, that last job that I had with him. And I was like, I don't know if you can get any better than that on active duty in the air force. It was so much fun flying at the schoolhouse and, and then doing sim search stuff. And COVID actually was where the, where it turned the corner for me on, on going to a passenger airline. Uh, I had, hmm. I had an interview at a major passenger carrier that got canceled about two days before I was supposed to head down for the interview because of huh. COVID. And then I was scrambling because I really wasn't paying much attention to the cargo side at the time. And uh, then I was scrambling and I was really fortunate to land with my first cargo job, you know, at a, at a kind of a minor cargo carrier. And then, and then a year later, now here I'm at one of the, one of the big boys. So it's, it's really great. You started off wanting to carry passengers around the world. I did. Yeah. Well, I lived in Northern California and I thought, you know, there's several domiciles on the West Coast that are either a drive or a very easy commute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, I mean, between San Francisco, Oakland. Oakland, L.A., all that, like I was thinking, OK, that this is the way to go. But then with COVID and then my, my wife said, you know, I'd love to move up to Oregon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, that's not going to be easy to commute anywhere or there. But, uh, you know, at, at that point, I didn't even have a job. Mm-hmm. And and at the first carrier I went, it wasn't a big deal because they bought me a plane ticket to, to my mm-hmm. trips every time. So, wow. but it, it worked out, you know, but it's funny. I There's sometimes when I tell people I'm thankful for COVID because it led me into what I believe is the right fit for wow. me in, in aviation. Like I, I really like uh, my job a lot. So. Doug, I think we're going to talk about that more, right? And then we're going to talk about that more coming up. There. We we what, are, you know, yeah. How your job is. Because Matt, Matt and Steve, well, we're also going to talk about how Matt and Steve have a juxtaposition in their careers where Matt mm-hmm. stayed on the cargo track and, and Steve left the passenger track, went to cargo, and then went back we to passenger. Back. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about yep. that later. Steve, how'd you get into aviation? Probably like you, I was kind of like born for it. I don't remember ever wanting to be anything other than a pilot since I was a little kid. And my parents, for whatever reason, took me to see Top Gun in the theater when I was five years old. <laughs> for whatever reason, because it's and, an amazing uh, movie. That's why. Yeah, I know. But I was, you know, in, in retrospect, like, I don't know if I would take my five-year-old kid to see Top Gun <laughs> in the theater, but my mom, did they, my mom did they know you liked, uh, did they know you liked, liked airplanes before they took you to see that? I think I, I definitely had uh, a, a lot of interest in airplanes. I don't, you know, I, I can't really remember how serious I was or yeah. a, about it at that age, being so young. But I think they had a, an idea. And my dad and, and his brothers are, are, they've always been kind of uh, av geeks. My grandfather, uh, he was a pilot. He flew uh, P-38s uh, World War II, and then he was mm-hmm. a corporate pilot till he retired. So I, I have like that family connection. I had that reinforcement from the family and all just kind of being surrounded by that interest. And growing up in Southern California, I would go, my, my dad and my uncle would take me to LAX, go mm-hmm. up to Imperial Hill yep. before they even had it set up as like a proper spotting location. Mm-hmm. It was just like, you're just up on that hill overlooking the, uh, the airport. Yeah. For me, LAX is like 
uh, to borrow a, a term from another app geek friend, it's like my field of dreams. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's where I, why you know it's, it's where I got so much inspiration for for what I wanted to do with the rest of my mm-hmm. life. I, I know passengers hate LAX, but I always will love LAX irrationally oh, as, as you know, just that place <laughs> that was so formative for me. I would have like like to have done what Doug did. And, you know, I, I think I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy and, and go that route and then transition into a civilian career. But I wasn't that great of a student in high school. And <laughs> so that wasn't really an option. Uh, I did end up right out of uh, high school, uh, 19 years old. I, I started flight training at a... Drew, you might you might have heard of uh, Oakland Academy, uh, or sorry, Sierra Academy in uh, Oakland. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah, yep, you know, that's where I went uh, yep. and did my flight training in the mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Just I've done everything in this industry. I feel like I did aerial mapping. I did aircraft sales uh, at San at the San Jose airport when I was in college. 135 cargo, corporate, now passenger and cargo. It's been a long and windy road to get uh, to the to the major airline, but. I, I think this is actually a really good transition because I know that you both have listened to a lot of the episodes and you know that this question is coming. We ask all of our guests, what's your favorite aviation moment that time that you knew it was in your blood? For you, Steve, because you've known your entire life that that it's it's there. And I know that you're an Avgeek. Can you point to that one moment in your life where, where not necessarily you said, I want to go into aviation, but like your favorite aviation moment? There are so many moments throughout my flight training and my my professional work history that I could I think uh, where I there would, whatever happened there was like some like moment of clarity where I'm like yes this is where I belong for me the two most special moments by far are when I started uh, on the 747 my very first flight mm-hmm. on the 747 was out of LAX oh, and wow. then two years two years later when I upgraded to captain on the 747 very first flight was out of LAX. And so to me, like, I'm, I'm a very like rational and objective person, but like, to me, those are very like, I don't know, like spiritual or transcendent <laughs> moments. Where like, what yes, are the, the universe, the universe uh-huh. loves me and is taking care of me because, you know, it set me up like perfectly <laughs> for, the, for these moments. So yeah, when I, when I, you know, pushing the throttles forward on the 747 out of uh, LAX, uh, you know, as a captain in the left seat was, it was like a lifetime uh, validation moment for sure. What an amazing story. <laughs> Matt, what about you? There, there's a lot of moments, I think, you know, where I, I realize like that I am super lucky to be in this profession. You know, I honestly, like the, the one that made me think, oh, I actually do want to be a pilot was flying that glider at the mm-hmm. academy. The fir- first time I landed the thing, I was like, <laughs> I could do this. And that was awesome. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, there's several, several great war stories that we go through in the Air Force career, but actually yeah, one of them was with Doug, which uh, flying my Finney flight with basically Doug and everybody from, from our uh, little unit there in the Air Force was so much fun. And I just remember coming back where we got to cancel and go VFR and just fly over the fly over the Diablo Hills mm-hmm. and everything and and uh, I'm coming in for the for my last landing in the KC10 and Doug sitting in the right seat and I'm just thinking <laughs> if I don't grease this landing on I'm never going to hear the end of it and it might have been it might have been like my finest oh, wow. landing in the KC10 <laughs> it was it was very nice it was it was a well executed overhead and landing so I was really happy about that and then I, I just reminded myself recently that when I was a little kid like the one like 
little kid thing about airplanes I do remember was when I was little, we went on a trip to Miami when I was about 10 or 10 years old uh, from Wisconsin. And we flew from Minneapolis to Miami on a, on a DC 10. And I remember my dad pointing at the DC 10 and I remember it clearly with the three Mm -hmm. engines and everything. And then, and then down the ramp was a 747. And those are the two airplanes that I'm no expert on, on airplanes, but those are the two I could pick out at any, any point in my life, you know, and I got to actually fly both of them, uh, you know, professionally. And that was, that, that's been pretty awesome. And, you know, now I'm in the new hotness and the triple seven, which is pretty cool. (laughs) No, that's the old, the old hotness. The seven eight is is the new hotness. <laughs> well, it's, it's, to me, it's pretty new hotness. So I'll take it. So comparing the triple seven to the DC ten, they're not that much different in size. What's the difference? Like, what- no, honestly, the triple is probably the smoothest airplane I've ever. I mean, it just handles so well. It's got fly by wire, yeah. so it's just weird. It's kind of like, so in the KC ten, they have a lever CWS. Doug will know what that is. It's a type of autopilot where it kind of auto trims, so you can kind of set your pitch, and then it then it auto trims a stab to that. Well, the it, it's the weirdest thing is flying the triple. You just set your pitch, and you ne- I, you never use the trim switch. Like nobody uses the trim switch because it just does like a, a maneuver in the stab that that's you know trim trims it all out for you and and gosh i mean coming in for you know just, just flying it around hand flying it is it's just very responsive and intuitive and and it's this most stable airplane i think i've ever flown so doug if you know if you end up going there you're gonna love it yeah i i, I can't wait <laughs> you still can't you still can't flare you still can't flare like a dc-10 though right because no no right? you gotta, you, that is one of the big differences is coming in you fly, you drive the aim point down to about 30 feet and, and then you start your flare. You, mm-hmm. you're, I mean, you, you drive that because if you start flaring early, it'll float to the end of the touchdown zone. Every It's mm-hmm. just, you, it, the wings are super, super lifty and efficient. So you gotta, you gotta just trust that you're going to drive it down. And so like, that was like my first couple landings, I was just floating them because I was kind of doing the Casey 10 thing you know, where I kind of round out a little bit and, and, you know, you, you start looking down the end of the runway at 50 feet. And when you do that in the triple, if you do any look up, pull up at 50 feet, you're, you're not going to, you're probably going to go around because you're going to exceed the touchdown. Drew, so, did you hear the word, um, the word that he just made up? We, we make up words on this podcast. He said, yeah, uh, we do. And we steal lifty. stuff from other people. What? He said the lift, you, you I, said lifty. You, you might lifty. get a little, you lifty might get a little too much lifty. lifty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's our that's our made up word for the week. No, but, but you know, but you know exactly what he meant. There's I knew no exactly. Yeah, they're very efficient that. wings. With the... <laughs> yeah, but you know, with these wingspans. So one of our pilots, a retired pilot who used to fly the DC ten, then flew the triple seven three hundred. He was like, "Yeah, the DC ten has stubby wings, so you have to come in really at a steep angle to have that lift, and these wingspans keep getting." Lo- wider and wider seven eight seven ten i feel like that almost lands flat there's hardly any flare at all a full flare in the triple is like five degrees oh, yeah. <laughs> like four to, four to five degrees nose high is full flare yeah. and that was that was another difference with the 10 like it was six to eight degrees you know and yeah you know i mean that that's a big difference in what you're looking at 
yeah, the, you know, the aim point's like halfway up the window, so it's like a it's like a fifty flapper in the KC10 as far as where your aim point is. And Doug, these news items, we have three or four. Let's go through them fast because I have more questions for them about flying cargo and triple oh, yeah. and seven forty seven. We we don't have <laughs> have to spend a lot of time on these at all. A few articles, some of them regarding cargo, uh, especially with the holidays approaching. We definitely want to discuss those this week. But we, first, we have a couple topics to get through real quickly. Uh, Doug, what do we have? Drew, yeah, we talked last week about the Omicron variant and its possible negative toll on the aviation industry that was just beginning to recover. Well, they've found, scientists have found around the globe that they're beginning to understand more about the variant. And many feel that it's less dangerous than other COVID variants and that the current vaccines will remain effective against it. Really good news for the world, for the aviation industry, and we're, we're going to yeah, continue learning more. and you're more. noticing the stock markets. The stock markets are back up the last two days now that we're learning it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another one, Bloomberg reports that China approves the Boeing 737 MAX for return to service. China approved the changes Boeing proposed, clearing a path for commercial flights to resume later in the month or early next year. And then, Drew, this is from today. I'm pulling up a screenshot of this. We talked about the, what was it, the 5G rollout a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all the concerns. And all the concerns. The yeah, and, and the FAA yesterday released an air, airworthiness directive to airlines saying if there are 5G towers in the area, the vicinity of the airports beginning on January 5th, they can't even do Cat 1 ILSs. And, and to the listeners... That is just a precision approach down to minimums in bad weather. Basically saying that marine layer that rolls into LAX, if if it's below 200 feet, they may not be able to go in. We're talking about like hundreds, hundreds mm-hmm. of flight cancellations here. We're going to have to do a little more research well, and, and follow up on that. Well, this is going to be a huge problem. I mean, we can't stop all of ILS landings around the country because of that. And guys, we're, this is new. So we're looking into this ourselves. I guess they'll do some flight verification testing. of how much flight testing. Yeah. But to be honest, if there's a tower near Burlingame in near San Francisco or Reston near where Dulles Airport is, they're going to have to take it down because you can't stop all that international traffic, all those flights because of someone's AT&T has a telephone tower there. They just have to move it. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, but them we'll people see. are going to complain that they don't have 5G service at the airport and they're going to blame the airlines for it. No, I'm, I'm, I, I, that's, a, that's a rabbit hole, but you can see where these issues might lie. So we'll, we'll definitely have to look into it. Yeah, but talking to um, our flight attendant friend, Roxy, who's uh, from Dubai where they've had 5G for a while, she said that they don't. They have not reported mm-hmm. any concerns, so maybe it's uh, overhyped. I just flew in there; it was fine. You did, yeah. Okay, so yeah, we have. Yeah, and I, I want to say uh, this is not confirmed from from my end, but uh, Korea, I think they've had five G mm-hmm. for a while, and I used I to go so. in and out of uh, Incheon uh, every, you know, several times a month. Uh, no, no issues with the radar altimeter there, because I think that's what what they're saying is that the. The 5G uh, disrupts the uh, the radar altimeter yeah. on the bottom of the airplane. Right. To get back to all of closer to our comfort zones. So this story is from Quartz. Supply chain chaos has moved from seaports to airports. It's in this magazine, but you, you can find this anywhere. So the congestion that has uh, engulfed seaports recently is now spilling over to airports as retailers race to move products around the world. Prior to the holidays, Christmas is uh, less than two weeks away. 
sea shipping. If you want to get a package via sea shipping, it's out of the question. Moving products by air is the only way to possibly get the products to move in time. And that's good for our companies that we work for. Boxes are starting to pile up at airport warehouses as air cargo companies deal with staffing shortages, aging infrastructure, and an onslaught of Christmas cargo. Some shipments are now taking two weeks to clear customs, and truck drivers have been reported to wait up to 12 hours just to pick up their shipments at several airports around the country. Air freight rates have doubled over the last year as supply has struggled to keep up with demand. Are you are you seeing this, Matt? Are you seeing full airplanes? Yeah. Oh, I mean, the airplanes are always full, uh, except actually we just talked to somebody on the bus that they flew an empty airplane uh up to a location up on the East Coast, it basically is a dry run for peak season. So to make sure that their ramp agents and everybody were ready to park the airplanes and and on and offload the airplanes. So, uh, you know, there's definitely some preparation going on. And uh, this is the peak season. But, I mean, our company, you know, talking to everybody, they're, they're saying that it's been at peak level of operations since basically the beginning of COVID. So now it's just like a peak of mm-hmm. peak, you know. So it's... Yeah, you know, the the things that we're noticing is like, uh, you know, they do a big sort at the hub that takes, uh, you know, that that, that kind of drives the timing of everything, right? So all the launches, it, it's basically like the, you know, it's, it's like the elephant walk. You got just airplane after airplane after airplane right after the sort. They just get filled and they go one after the other. And uh, the sorts have been later uh, just because they're, uh, there's so much. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they're... The, the other part of it is the, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people were quitting their jobs for a while because they were getting unemployment benefits and other things. So, you know, the employment crisis is, is driving a lot of this issue mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Matt, I've got, I've got a question that this doesn't necessarily deal with this particular article, but I, I don't want to forget to ask this. Do you guys still do hot spares or air spares? Yeah, they're called I, I can't remember what what they yeah used yeah to be they called. do like they they have a sweep airplane that flies around empty and it's got extra and it's let's say it's scheduled to go from you know Denver to you know Oakland or something like that, but it'll go via a circuitous route that goes over a whole bunch of other uh, packing places and uh, so that they can pick up. Uh, so if if somebody can't pick up a you know they're, they're their uh, pallet is late, uh, but they need to get their stuff out. They'll go and the sweeper will pick it up and, and get it where it needs to go. Yeah. They'll just drop in. Yeah. Okay. They, so, they, so you they still do that. The, I, I thought I was a plan to possibly divert mm-hmm. every time that that one. The next article deals a lot with the same uh, about what we've been talking about, Drew. This is from the Associated Press. Shippers prepare for another pandemic crush of holiday gifts. Last year's holiday shipping season was slammed by a flood of packages and sick and quarantine employees unable to work due to the pandemic. Scott Adams, the local president for the American Postal Workers Union, said a lot of workers are saying, oh, no, here we go again regarding the issues that are happening yet again this year. 3.4 billion packages are expected to move around the country this holiday season, up 400 million compared to the same period last year. The U.S. Postal Service, UPS, and FedEx have hired nearly 230,000 new and temporary workers to keep up with the demand. One benefit of this year over last is more shoppers are expected to do some or at least a little bit of their shopping in-store. Improvements to the Postal Service infrastructure this year has increased expected capacity to sort and ship packages by 4.5 million parcels a day. 
up 4.5 million a day in their sorting capacity. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy said, we're ready. So send us your packages and your mail. You know, you guys, maybe it's not as bad as <laughs> the news makes it out to be because I'm not seeing a crush of people at Home Depot and Costco, you know, cleaning the shelves. It seems like I was just at Costco today. I, they had everything I wanted. I don't, maybe it's not as bad as we expected it would be. I think the infrastructure is probably at its pretty close to its limit if it's not, you know, completely at or over its limit. People are still making it work. And the, yeah, exactly. when I was at the, the cargo airline that uh, I was at, you know, 2020 and going into this year was uh, we were going 110%. A lot of guys picking up a lot of overtime. It's not ideal uh, because the the flying is technically great. The, the, the amount of flying that they had was more than we were really staffed for, but you had guys that were willing to pick up that overtime and be gone from home longer. And it was lucrative, certainly, uh, for the people that were willing to do that. But uh, it, it seems uh, unsustainable, especially... Uh, mm. I don't know if Matt, you saw this uh, at, at your uh, former airline, but uh, certainly at mine, we were come December. We had guys that were timed out, you know, a thousand hours mm-hmm. of flying in a year before the year is over, and that's yeah. uh, that, that creates problems <laughs> yeah, in peak season, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, Steve, I, I wonder if they did that on purpose, though. Hey, if I time out by early December, then I'm guaranteed that I'll be home for hey, the holidays. Yeah, it, one guy, if your marriage, exactly that. If your marriage and your <laughs> yeah. family can handle that stress of being gone that much, uh, then by all means, go for it. <laughs> yeah. I, I have an eight-year-old daughter, so I, I was uh, I was more interested in staying home uh, when I could be home. In the airlines, we we used pre-COVID, we used to carry fifty percent of the world's air cargo. And I can tell you right now, with all these demands, maybe we're so good at it, I don't notice it. Because usually when there's a lot of cargo to go out, like our rampers would call and say, I'm going to have to hold this off and this off. And it's a struggle to fit all the bags and the cargo. And the bags always go first, you know, because when it comes down to it, we move passengers and their bags. Even if it's a high value piece of cargo, the passenger bags are going to go first. And I haven't seen the ramp have to tussle over what to put on recently. So, or maybe they're just really good at it now. You know, as far as the volumes, this next story kind of speaks to that where these big companies, this is from Bloomberg, FedEx and UPS turn holiday surge into someone else's problem, <laughs> meaning they're not going to get slammed to to fill, you know, everything to the to the brim and maybe not be successful moving these packages. So they're being conservative. So FedEx and UPS have opted to aggressively raise prices and turn away lower yielding business instead of increasing capacity. So this has allowed the two companies to continue accepting shipments and largely deliver items on time. But it's created new difficulties for smaller companies that have relied on FedEx, relied on FedEx and UPS to deliver their packages. Some can no longer afford the increased costs. FedEx expects a 10% increase in volume of shipments this year, which will reach new record levels. Smaller shipping companies try to increase capacity in the lead up to this holiday season, but many have been impacted by the supply chain woes. One small company, Lone Star Overnight, ordered new automation equipment, which was supposed to help increases in volume. And this is funny. (laughs) It's probably on a ship just off of Long Beach. Yeah, the equipment is still stuck on a ship somewhere. (laughs) 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 Amazon, who launched its own delivery service several years ago, has inspired other companies such as Walmart and Target to launch their own delivery services. Despite this increase, delivery data service ship matrix 
forecasts that package volume will outstrip delivery capacity by 1 million packages a day. It's crazy. What do you guys think? Matt, it seems like a great time for you to get into the industry. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, we just had a system bid recently, and uh, uh, you know, I'm feeling very fortunate with my timing. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are guys that were one class ahead of me that got awarded left seat in the seven in one of the smaller airplanes, and you know, that means you know, as a matter of fact, they're not going to have their required thousand hours of 121 time by the time they can get a training date for the left seat. So you know, that's going to wow. be an issue. Uh, you know, a buddy of mine. Uh, he's two years in, he's getting a wide body captains, uh, uh, in the system bid. So like there's, they are aggressively hiring. And and that's like to that story, I think right now the, the major carriers are both positioned to grow, uh, -hmm. with, with, you know, so that they can, I think eventually they'll meet that capacity that they're giving away Mm -hmm. right now, but now they're like, we want to be the reliable ones for the really important high value stuff. Uh, and then once we hire 3,000 more pilots uh, then and, and buy a few more airplanes, we'll, we'll take that back. Yeah. Drew, speaking our language, that's in a way that's like an elite customer, an elite freaking flyer, that they're going to move heaven yep. and earth to get a, a diamond, a platinum, a, an Uber elite, a gold chain medallion, as you call them, mm-hmm. on, on the airplane to keep mm-hmm. that business. But if you don't keep them on the airplane they might take their business elsewhere. And and so in a way, this is kind of that elite flyer. Steve, uh, along the lines of, of this article, you were in the, the cargo world for what, seven years, six years? Uh, almost six. Almost okay. Six. In, in those six years that you were in the cargo world, have you ever seen anything like the last 18 months from a cargo standpoint? No, no, not at all. It was, uh, there was a lot more consistency uh, going into 2019 and uh, we, our company was actually seeing a little bit of a slowdown. There had been a lot of expansion in the in a couple of years that I had been there, and then uh, towards the end of uh, 2019, there was a slowdown uh, in business. And in fact, the the CEO normally gave out a Christmas or holiday bonus to all the employees of the company, and he sent out a letter, and I think in early December of that year, saying like, "Hey." You know, business just isn't what what we were expecting it to be, so we're not going to be able to do the Christmas bonus. Hmm. Well, a couple months later, hmm. when all of a sudden, like, ch- cargo going out of China was, uh, you know, whatever the price was per kilogram, it, it, far exceeding anything it had been before, like, business was booming. And uh, they made so much money that we got the holiday bonus in February or, or March or whatever it was. It was like, hey, we have a bunch of extra money. Here, you, Here's your holiday bonus. <laughs> Uh, yeah, things, things turned around quickly and yeah, I mean, kind of the other challenge of that whole thing too, was that, uh, in addition to having all this extra flying, we were restricted by where we could lay over. It it created these sort of manpower, uh, chain issues where you would fly an airplane into Incheon, get off the air and you know, normally the airplane would be empty or you were only carrying a couple thousand pounds going because the airplane is going into, uh, China. So you get off the airplane in Incheon, get your rest there, and then, you know, however many hours later, you take an empty airplane or a very lightly loaded airplane somewhere into China, and then it would get bulked out or maxed out on weight, and then you'd take it to Anchorage. And you'd get off in Anchorage, the airplane would continue on to wherever. 
normally in the past, previous to COVID, crews would just lay over in whatever Chinese city that we were flying out of. But uh, that suddenly became uh, an impossibility. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, there have been several times landing at max landing weight coming from China to the U.S. Very, very little fuel, but max landing weight. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you, okay. you would, it was a lot. <laughs> So this may be an embarrassing question for our countries. <laughs> so it's max landing weight coming back from China. So going to China on average, how full are, are the cargo planes? Going to? <laughs> yeah. Do we have anything? You know, sometimes, sometimes I don't know. We're not dropping off. <laughs> yeah, Matt, I don't know what you saw, but most of the stuff that I would take into China would be like fresh produce. Uh, oh, okay. That was really yes. yeah. We weren't yeah. taking like mm-hmm. uh, manufactured goods, not a lot of products. No. Yeah. In fact, uh, Washington State has a, a big cherry season. There's like I think there's about a, like a week or two week time span where we were flying, you know, hundred thousand pounds of cherries from Moses Lake, Washington, up through Anchorage and hmm. on to China. So that was uh, they do love they love their cherries apparently. <laughs> They must have had high fuel prices, too, because we would always ferry as much gas as possible. So we would oh, land yeah. in China at max landing weight with as much fuel as possible. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, and then you know, so that we'd basically, they'd barely have to put any additional fuel on, but they're going to put all the all the cargo on. I mean, 150 yeah. kilos, a, you know, 150,000 kilos a, or whatever it was. It was just a, so much. I mean, 150 tons of cargo yeah. was nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some things I remember from uh, Washington is we were one year we were taking all this lobster, like we can fit all the lobster. So the Europeans really needed lobster like immediately. Mm-hmm. And then another year mm-hmm. we saw asparagus connecting from California. Yeah. yeah. So we do have a couple things. But, you know, with FedEx and UPS turning away some business, there's going to be other people that want to take that over. Do you does this phenomenon 737s being converted to cargo? That seems like a new thing to me. Boeing has um they just announced at the Dubai Air Show that they're going to convert 11 737s into a 737-800-BCF as if there aren't enough yeah. versions of the 737. So I think we're going to see more of that, these old 737-NG, the 700s, 800s being converted to cargo to carry what FedEx, UPS, Amazon Air, what the stuff that they can't, they can't carry. Well, they could be like your hub turners. You know, you could even... St- place some somewhere in Asia, somewhere in Europe to basically run hub turns there uh, and get the places to the major hubs so that the 747 triples can pick out all the, you know, the big stuff. But yeah, I, I found my, my one year at my previous company, there were so many cargo outfits that started cropping up that, that were almost out of business. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, Western Global was one of them I remember. What, I was about yeah. to say Western, you know, Western Global, East, Eastern yeah. Airlines, like you know the, these things that were like dead in the you know Miami Air was was bankrupt, and now they're starting and they're they're like hiring direct captains and stuff like that because they're like oh there's business, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean Lone Star overnight, yeah, <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> so I mean they're like trucking companies with with wings, I guess. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty nuts to yeah that that was where I was noticing I was like wow there's all these. There's a lot more airlines than I knew even existed. And some of that is because they're just coming out of the woodworks again because there's business again. So, Well, Drew, we, we noticed that in Anchorage. That oh, some yeah. Of those, some of those airlines, airlines yeah. coming through were like, who is this? We've, we've never <laughs> seen these people. 
Well, let's let's move on to just more about what the day to day life is like in in the cargo world, and and talk about a day in the life. What does a normal trip look like? But before we do that, you both flew the seven forty seven. That's one of Drew's my favorite airplanes. Can you talk? I we, I know we've talked a little bit about how how great it was to fly. Can both of you just in like two minutes or less talk about flying that? And especially Matt talking about the Dreamlifter that you got to fly. Let's let's start with Steve. Steve, I, I you were on it for six years. What was it like flying that? Because you talked about just how iconic of an airplane it was. Yeah, uh, you know, to me, it's just the best airplane ever, the most magnificent airplane, because uh, it gives you pretty much all the capability you could possibly want in terms of lift and speed and uh, being able to get in and out of surprisingly small places. I mean, really, you, your limitation mm-hmm. normally will come down to can the pavement sustain the weight of the airplane and is there enough room for you to turn? Uh, if you, you know, mm, most, not the runway length. Yeah. Well, runway length, even, I mean, you could, if, you know, if you weren't too heavy and it was, the runway wasn't wet, you could easily land that airplane on a 5,000 foot runway as long as the pavement can sustain wow. the weight. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I took, uh, an empty 747 into, uh, uh, it's, it's just North of, uh, Tucson. It's a, it's a Boeing, uh, heavy maintenance facility, but the runway there, I want to say it's like 6,000 ish feet. But I was, I was like, man, I've, I've never come into a runway this short. And we had the landing data that said we could do it on auto brakes, uh, I don't know, three or whatever. I was like, you know what, I'm going to turn it up to auto brakes four just to make sure. And we, that airplane stopped less than halfway down the runway. Like it stopped in less than 3,000 oh, wow. feet. It's got a lot of brakes and it can, you know, when it's that light, it has a very low approach speed. So it's so, so capable uh, as an airplane. And I absolutely loved loved hand flying that airplane because it was it was so responsive and so balanced doug just just for your reference to me the 747 handles like a sports car and the 737 handles like an old pickup truck <laughs> that, that's, that's what i'm going from okay you know you, you think it would be the other way around you think the smaller airplane would be would be more nimble and sporty but nope it's completely the opposite the the, the 737 is almost wow. like too big for its wing it feels like but the the 747, at least the 400, was like, it's just perfectly proportioned with power and lift and uh, everything. Just a magnificent airplane. Doug, you said the 737 felt heavier than it the DC-10. Mm-hmm. Or it, it does, yeah. But be, before we go on to Matt and the Dreamlifter, Steve, you flew the 200 as well, right? No, no, only the 400. Oh, you only, only flew the 400. the 400. Okay. Yeah. All right. We had the classic at, the, at my airline. We, had, we did have the classic for a couple of years, but they retired it. Uh, shortly before I upgraded, so okay. it was all 400s when I was there. Yeah. Okay, Stephen, what what's the slowest landing speed that a 747 could slow down to? Um, 130. Oh, I think I think you could do 120 knots uh, in a at, oh at like your, at a minimum landing uh, empty airplane with like 70,000, 60,000 pounds of fuel. I think you could get down into the 120 knot range with full flaps. It's got a lot. Of, it's got a lot of high lift device on it yeah i don't know matt you might remember it better than i do but i, I want to say i, I was going to say like 130 was okay. probably the lowest i ever saw but yeah you probably could, you i could, could probably find a reference for it somewhere but yeah it, it it was a it had a wide range of uh speeds and capabilities so hmm. matt let's talk about the dream lifter just real quickly to the listeners who don't know what that is give a, a 30 second synopsis and then talk about what flying that thing was was like 
Yes. So the dream lifter, you, you just need to look it up like on Google images. Cause it looks like a giant, like Belaga whale or something. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a bloated 747 and it's designed to basically carry the parts for the Dreamliner, the 787 uh, all over the world. So previous company had the contract to fly that. There's only, I believe four of them. One of those, like it's kind of a rite of passage to get to fly it. To be honest, the airplane itself is like, kind of a pos <laughs> it's got the it's got the pratt and whitney engines which are, are you know more of a pain than the than the ge engines and uh hmm. it's a but i mean once you get once you get in front of the curtain in the cockpit you're in a 747 400 and everything is like mm-hmm. feels normal it's it just louder there's no APU on it because uh, the, really? APU, the APU in the 747, the exhaust of that, and it goes straight out the tail cone. But this airplane, uh, the Dreamlifter, has a, it unlocks the tail and it swings the whole tail over the left wing to open up the cargo bay so they can put these huge air, aircraft parts and fuselages and stuff inside of the cargo bay. So, like, all hmm. of that, ex- all that space is just nothing but cargo space for for large aircraft parts and so they they you know i was doing a walk around and the tail was open and i was just looking at it thinking <laughs> how how is that going to hold together because it's like yeah i mean it's so much weight enormous. on the hinges yeah yeah, it's, yeah mm-hmm. huge bolts that 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 come together once it turns and they plug it in and thankfully it, you know the slipstream isn't going to like push the tail over to the side so <laughs> but uh was it know. was it much more difficult to fly and land uh, it was so again, aerodynamically different than again once he got in it it just felt like another 747 it was a little bit more um you know you needed a little extra power and uh you know you'd hold your power a little longer because there's so much drag on it but mm-hmm. honestly like you know i remember thinking oh is this gonna be hard to land and i landed it and i was like huh okay it was just like a 747 i mean you forget that it's the you forget that it is what it is until you go back behind the curtain and see there's like mm-hmm very very little like i mean there's a there's a galley and a fridge there's no mm-hmm. supernumerary compartments uh there's no uh crew rest area there's a crew rest area in the cockpit but uh it's yeah i mean it's just bare but there's as little extra in there as possible just to make the most possible space underneath um but yeah it was it was neat i was really happy i got to fly it before i switched companies <laughs> and the the cargo compartment's not pressurized on that airplane right Nope, no pressurization mm. in the cargo compartment. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is limited in to, to carrying what it does. But funny you mentioned the short runways because there's a story from several years back that they were coming into Wichita with the Dream the Dreamlifter and landed at the wrong airport in the Beach Factory, which is like a 3,000-foot oh. runway, <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> which is a really short runway. And so it was all on the news, and they had to, they had to do some extra toll to figure out they could take off. And, you know, and it took off, like he was saying, like it only took about half the runway to get off the ground with that thing, you know, and it was light. So, yeah, the, the 747 has, has some serious power, and the, the, the Dash 8, is uh, is a wonderful uh, variant on the 747 as well. It's very modern, and the engines on that thing are really impressive. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it, the power that that aircraft has. I remember we were taking off at almost a million pounds, and we're cli- we're climbing out at like five thousand feet a minute below fifteen thousand feet, and it was like no problem at all. This thing just had- well, is it is it like the triple seven three hundred where you don't use the max power for takeoff? 
Oh yeah, yeah. We, we almost never use max power unless we have to for maintenance. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you did, it's a it's a fun ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank God for VNAV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for both of you, what? is a normal trip pairing like i i know that matt you mentioned and and steve probably too at, at your previous airline that you're on the road for like 14 days at a time maybe not so much at, at your current one matt but what what does a normal trip look like you mentioned east eastbound around the world westbound around the world did you do any domestic only type stuff like what if if the listeners are looking into the cargo world or see a cargo plane landing what is that crew going through? My, my last airline was ACMI, which stands for Aircraft Crew Maintenance Insurance, which is different from your FedEx and UPSs because there's no external infrastructure for uh, moving packages beyond, beyond the airplanes, right? Uh, FedEx and UPS both have, uh, you know, trucking and sort centers and all that. ACMI airlines, they just exist purely as airlines for hire by companies like DHL. Uh, we picked up contracts with Asian and stuff like that. The way they like to set up the crews at, at my airline was uh, 16 days uh, for the company. You didn't always go out to 16 days and you, you weren't didn't even have to extend against your will as uh, some some airlines uh, made their crews do. But basically what they just wanted to have you because you could be anywhere in the world and it, it wouldn't make sense to build a schedule for like a four day trip. <laughs> if you're going to go out to like from Los Angeles to Istanbul, uh, you know, they might want to use you in, in other ways, especially the way uh, contracts popped up. And we also did uh, Department of Defense flying. I, normally we didn't have a lot of heads up for that. I mean, they knew like, you know, the Air Force would probably want us to do X amount of hours of flying this month, but it was never set in stone very far ahead of time. So, you know, normally like 72 hours, you'd, you'd look at your schedule and be like, oh, I guess in, you know, a couple of days I'll be at Dover Air Force Base or Ramstein or something like that. It was very random. And uh, I always told guys to just embrace the adventure because it's going to just be constant change. And if you're expecting to be somewhere on mm-hmm. a certain day, you're just going to be frustrated and disappointed. I'd say the the duty days worked out to uh, somewhere between, you know, eight on the sh- on the shorter end, and then up to uh, twenty four on the really really long days. Just because of the nature of the airplane and the kind of flying we're doing, like you don't you're not going to use a seven forty seven to move cargo from L.A. to Phoenix. Uh, you know, you wanted to get the maximum. Uh, out of your dollar for, for utilizing that airplane, you want to take something heavy a long distance. Otherwise it's just not worth it. Right. Normally. Yeah. Eight, I would say between eight and 16 hours uh, of duty day. And then once you're past 16, then those are kind of like, those, those weren't as common, but they did happen. Normally a three man crew. Occasionally if the flight time was under eight hours, they would just have us with two, with two pilots. And then also we would uh, have double crews for uh, any any flying time over 12 hours. Depending on uh, where you were going after that, the, you know, your, your min- minimum rest time would be anywhere from 12 hours to, uh, I think, 14, depending on the length of the flight segment and how many people were, were manning that flight segment. So there were little variations in your minimum rest. But normally we, were, we always went over minimum rest. It was very rare to have a, a minimum rest layover. One of the other things that you won't 
see as much in, in the major airlines is uh, we had what was called a, a one in seven or a, like, I don't know what the, what they call it at some of the other airlines, but basically every seven days within a seven day stretch, you have to have 24 hours off. <laughs> no, not, not one of the, uh, not one of the less enjoyable ones. Yeah. 16 day trips, normally two weeks off at the, at the end of that trip, depending on how you bid your schedule, a lot of fun and a lot of variety, but also uh, occasionally a little exhausting. Matt, your, your previous job probably was a lot like that. Can you just speak to the differences now between your current job and, and where you were previously? So he was, he got, I mean, his previous job sounds very similar to mine. Um, one of the big differences in my new airline is like, we're actually ske- scheduled in pairings. Uh, be, because they have, you know, a more set schedule and they, they run their own operations on the ground and everything uh, with their own cargo, um, they can they can build their pairing. So I'm like I'm on this trip now and I'll have the same captain for my whole uh, about two weeks that I'm out on the road. Whereas at my previous airline, I would fly with eight different captains mm-hmm. or nine different captains on a on a 16 day trip, which. You know, and and you wouldn't even have the same length of layover or anything. So you're, you know, you kind of go to the hotel and you're you can be on your own a little bit. But now in the you know current job, you're generally on pairings. Uh, you know, they they schedule your relief uh, relief pilots uh, much more precisely. I think uh, I think part of that is because previous airline did some Part 117 passenger operations, usually with DOD or the NFL or. Right, mm-hmm. one of the flights has yep. Victoria's Secret models that are taken to Milan and stuff like that. But, Steve, uh, your face. I mean, the, the, the variety. The variety. Uh, the variety I, 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 I was robbed. I was robbed. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there was variety at that previous airline, but uh, it, it also created complication for them. Uh, you know, so like I, I just feel like there's more certainty to what I'm doing, um, even though you can get extended on trips, and then. At my current airline, depending on what you're flying, I mean, I, I chose a wide body uh, long haul because I'm a commuter. I wanted to do single departure trips, which mm. means I have one commute a month. So I'm looking for trips that, that are going to be around 12 to 13 days long, but I have one one to and from commute. Uh, and as a commuter, that that's gold because, you know, if I was if I was on, uh, you know, three and four day trips uh several of them a month that that just adds days to the time away from home but if i if i lived in domicile or wanted to do more of a week on week off schedule i could go to you know one of the other uh types of aircraft um and then uh you know like in my airplane it's almost all international there's a few like you know technically my last leg was domestic you know up to alaska but it's uh it's you know mostly international um but you know, I like it because it's a single departure. It's like every month I get a two week vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I have to work for two weeks, and you know, the, the layovers. The, the company I'm in is really, really conscientious about fatigue, and, and even on international, they, they try as much as they can to avoid the 24 hour layover because uh, it. You know, people think, oh, 24 hours, that's awesome. You get a full day on the ground, but if you just landed after a long flight, you're probably tired. And if you're going to be taking off 24 hours later, if you get a full sleep, well, you're mm-hmm. going to have been up probably. There's not time minutes. to get two. Yeah, there's not time to get two there's... sleeps. You know, so so you yep. have to be, you know, like managing fatigue is. You know, it's kind of like you know in the Air Force, Doug, we had that issue as well. You know, you, you know, and the old adage of sleep when you're tired is important. 
mm-hmm. all I would add to it is, you know, plan a little bit. So if I'm tired and I'm on a 24 hour, I'm going to maybe just take a nap like I just did. And then mm-hmm. that way I'm only going to sleep for a couple hours just to recharge enough to be up and about so that then I can get a full sleep before I fly. But the, mm-hmm. the other side of that coin is flying long haul international. You're going to have a relief first officer on most flights. Uh, I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, we, we were just under the gun on the last one. So we had a seven hour flight and it was just the two of us, but the, uh, uh, you know, tomorrow we're going to have a relief first officer on one of our flights is 13 hours. So it's going to be double crew. And with those, you got, you got bunks and, you know, you, we call it dozing for dollars. You know, you just <laughs> you get to take a nap, <laughs> you, know, you get to get, get paid to take a nap on the airplane, you know? And, uh, but you know, the night, the current company I'm in is much, much better about planning for that even because previous company, you didn't know who you were flying with and nobody mm-hmm. really communicated. So everyone would show up and then it'd be like, so who wants the first rest? Yeah. Yeah. Who's the most tired? Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully it works out. Right. Yeah. You know, here it's like, you know what your role is and, and 20, you know, 24 hours prior to the flight, you're going to, the captain's going to send out an email saying, Hey, we're going to be resting for this schedule. You know, mm-hmm. and that way, that way you can plan it out. And, and man, does that mitigate fatigue big time? You know, just mm-hmm. knowing like, all right, you know, I know I've been up for eight hours prior to getting alerted for this flight, but that's okay because mm-hmm. I just need to get through the departure and climb out, and then I'm going to go take a three-hour nap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so it's you know, it, you know, I, I tell my wife like, you know, right now learning the airplane and the system is important, but. You know, it, it gets to a point where your job really is to manage fatigue, you know, to to manage your work rest cycles and, and make sure you're feeling good. Um, it's It hasn't been hard for me. And actually, in international, sometimes it works out because you might be flying at night in Asia, but that's like daytime back home, mm-hmm. you know, so you're kind of oh, on yeah. so, the same so you're staying on that, that same, yeah, the same circadian rhythm. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's just dark, if, if you know, lucky. but yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not always that way. Sometimes you get turned around, and yeah. that's when you depend on you depend on those long haul flights to get a nap in the flight in the yeah. flight deck, you know. So, but it, it's um, yeah. I mean, I'm really enjoying the the new gig a lot, and and I love the fact that if I get tired of the international stuff, uh, you know, with COVID restrictions and everything, that, that's the biggest hardship right now for international wide body flying is you go to these cool places and you lock out, you lock, yeah, you lock down the hotel. Um, you know, on my last trip, I, I dropped into Delhi in India, just, we didn't lay over. We dropped in just to offload and unload. And then we went to Dubai. Normally in Dubai, we, we stay downtown in a nice hotel and we have, uh, and we have, uh, you know, we I had a 72 hour layover there and I was thinking, Oh, this is gonna be great. You know, but because we touched du- uh, Delhi, India, that they have different restrictions and they said, no, you have to stay in the airport hotels, like our quarantine hotel. Now it wasn't it was a, a nice hotel because you that, had a massage place. chair, like one of those giant, I had a massage chair. I used the massage chair so much that first day that it like bruised my kidney. Broke it. <laughs> <laughs> I the second day and I couldn't do it. It hurt. Too much. <laughs> but, but they also had like all you can eat uh, at the hotel, like lobby, it gave you all the food you wanted to eat and all the, drinks including alcoholic beverages if you're if you if you're so inclined and it was good food it was amazing and so i was like mm. all right you know i mean i don't get to walk around walk about but it's at least they're giving me really great service and stuff so 
uh, you know, and then I also got to take a picture of a $60,000 bottle of scotch in the duty-free shop that I found. <laughs> <laughs> I asked my wife if I could buy it and she didn't want it. So <laughs> I was going to ask both these guys this question, but that, that's our next topic. So we should just go to that. One final question for both of you, Matt, you chose to stay in the cargo world despite getting offers to come to the civilian world or the passenger sector. And Steve, you spent years in the cargo sector and then you chose to come back to the passenger airline. Let's talk about why you chose that. Um, Stephen, why did you choose to come back, go to cargo and come back to the craziness of passenger airlines? Well, <laughs> when I was flying cargo, you know, I, you talk to people outside of the industry and they would they would kind of speculate, oh, it must be so much easier to fly cargo. You don't have to deal with passengers. And the truth is, is that think, as yeah. pilots, we're really in a minimal customer service role and we're not there for a conflict resolution or anything like that. You know, I always tell people, it, it doesn't really matter what's behind the cockpit door. You know, you just kind of show up and you do your job. And there are obviously subtle differences, but uh, whatever headaches or potential problems could come with the, the passenger flying it's just as true in cargo. I mean, we ran into all kinds of delays and, uh, you know, weight, sort, loading, uh, uh, pallet building issues in the cargo world. So it wasn't like the cargo world was this smooth running machine that didn't have the same kind of uh, problems that uh, passenger flying did or does. So for me, it didn't really matter. And it just happened that I got the call to uh, interview at this airline, which, uh, a bunch of my friends happen to work at and has a domicile, uh, you know, a two, two and a half hour drive, depending on traffic from my house. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was just ideal for me. You know, I had, uh, I had an app in at uh, Matt's airline and uh, I would have been happy to go there, but uh, this is the place that called me first. And uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and uh, passenger cargo. I just, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I'm living my dream and, and flying airplanes. That's interesting because I expected a completely different answer that you wanted the, the dynamic airport environment. And yeah, I mean, both both have their, their pluses and minuses. Now, I will say, and maybe Matt can attest to this also, but having worked in the cargo world, there are some very antisocial types in the cargo <laughs> world. I know. Swear a lot they can, you know, I would never that's, fly that's how they chose cargo. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't think it makes that much of a difference, but you know, <laughs> there is there's that demographic of cargo pilots that are very antisocial. <laughs> Matt and I know a lot of previous Air Force pilots who have gone cargo, and and we all say they are a great fit for the cargo world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but 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 Matt, you seem very social, so you don't seem like the cargo well cargo type. But you chose cargo. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. You know, it was interesting. You know, it's more like cargo chose me in some ways, but but it, it's a good fit for me. I uh, having at my previous airline, I got we got to fly passengers a couple of times, and there are there are some complications that come from that, just in terms of like, all right, you, you have to work with the flight attendants and restroom breaks, and just little things where it's like, oh, the convenience of being able to just get up whenever I feel like it, and I really go make, make a pot of coffee and, mm -hmm. and put in my meal and just stretch my legs and uh you know we, we level off and cruise and and i mean it, it's very quickly we get out of our uniform and throw on pajamas basically to fly yes. you know like yes. um it's you know it's 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 nice and uh <laughs> i haven't yeah I, i'm fortunate that i haven't flown with too many you know very very few people who are 
who I would consider like the the type, if you will, or like <laughs> the, the antisocial, or, or mo- most of the crew members I've flown with, especially at my current company, they're just they're awesome. Like I've I, I've been flying with really great people that are good mm-hmm. professionals, and even at the previous airline, I was really happy with you know with just about everyone I flew with. You know, there, there was one captain that that I was a little that that probably fit the bill a little bit, but other than that, it was you know just really good people that like to fly and and. You know, it's interesting, you know, coming from the military now seeing so many people that came through like kind of Steven's story there with so much like diversity of experience. I th- I just I always find it fascinating to, to listen to the guys that came through the civilian route to to get to this level because yeah. you got to you got to work it. You got to grind and it's for the love of the game until you finally make it, you know. And, and so, like, you know, I, I developed a, a true respect for everyone that came through that way because that's a that's a hard it's hard work for a long time with very little reward until you finally make it. And so a lot of ramen, yeah, a, lot of ramen. <laughs> a lot of ramen, a lot of ramen, <laughs> <laughs> but, and peanut, peanut butter yeah. sandwiches, yeah, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Now, I guess Matt, the reason I stayed, Matt, do you, did you oh, ever get the catering out of Anchorage that had like the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the, on the tray? On the sandwich oh, tray? Yeah. I, everyone always went for the peanut butter and jelly first. I don't know what, but it was those are the best sandwiches. <laughs> it's a, they are really <laughs> good. <They're> amazing. <laughs> I think as far as why I'm staying with cargo, I honestly like you know I, I wasn't surprised when Stephen said he only lived a couple hour drive from for from his uh, domicile and his airline. Uh, that makes a huge difference. Like Quality if I was living, yep. if I was still in Northern California, you know I would have been. I, I would have been really, really hard pressed not to go with something uh, in domicile that you know that was a pass, passenger carrier because you have those shorter trips. And if I'm yeah. not commuting, it's it's just you know three days here, four days there. That's not so bad. But uh, as a commuter, um, you know to be able to do a single departure trip, get all my work done in one big chunk there, and then uh, and then be done with it. Uh, the other thing is commuting on my airline is so much less stressful. Um, hmm. you know, yeah, it sounds like it. I've had to do the jump seat thing, uh, you know, checking the loads and all that. And, and it's stressful. Yep. Like, I'm like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> like, how do you guys do for, this? Yeah, like, some uh, some captains I've flown with have done that for 20 years. They've commuted for 20 yeah, years. You gotta have a plan and a backup right. plan. And I'm just like, man, like this is, and this is to get to work, you know, so I'm like, right. but, but at my current airline, I, I can go on and fly on company airplane and I can book my jump seat three weeks in advance. And not only that, but it's when I book that jump seat, nobody was, nobody can bump me for seniority or any of that. Like mm. I, it's like, mm. I have a ticket and, and right. that's, that's like a really great feeling to know it's scheduled and I'm flying it. And then on top of it, I can earn deviation money, which is basically when, when we have flights trips that start and end with deadheads and we decide to, uh, instead of flying out of our domicile location, we can fly out of our home, uh, airport. And, uh, and basically if we save, save the company money, they put it in a bank that we can use. Uh, that's so cool. And so when you build that bank up, then it's like, you know, if I don't feel like flying on the, the jump seat, you know, driving yeah, to like, you got that travel credit, you know, and flying on the jump seat. Yeah. But I'll tell you this, like flying in the jump seat is kind of great too, because uh, a lot of times it's a basic crew of two, so you can just use their bunk and sleep, mm-hmm. sleep the whole time, or just you're just laying flat, and I mean nobody's bothering you at all. 
uh, it's not, you know, like, so like <laughs> on the plane I commuted to commuted from uh, <laughs> on this trip, it was, you know, you get it. It's, it was, a, it was an MD 11 and mm-hmm. there's nothing. I mean, there's, there's the, basically the old flight engineer seat in the KC 10 and then a jump seat, uh, like the boom operator seat. Or, I mean, the cockpit is just like the KC 10 in that sense. Those are the two jump seats. And then basically, you know, once you get done with the takeoff, uh, you can go with the back and they have like a couple of, there's a crew rest cabin that they, that kind of extends, but that's kind of complicated. <laughs> And a lot of people don't like to use it. So they just pull out these futons and put them on the floor. So like one guy sleeps like behind the cargo net and, and like you turn these futons into a little taco. And it, I mean, it's not like you're like, Oh my God, you're roughing it. But it's like the most comfortable I've ever been on a plane. It's like, you're just like yeah. wrapped up in a little burrito and it's amazing. Well, we, we need to, uh, we need to move on to the closing, but last question. And, and just real quickly, Matt, are you afraid of single pilot cockpit coming into the cargo world? Uh, I think it's inevitable, but I'm not afraid of it. And the reason is, first of all, like my current company has never furloughed anyone. And I don't think that they're interested in furloughing people for something like that. So if they did roll it out, I think the only effect would be that they would hire mm-hmm. fewer people behind me and, you know, as they, as they phase that into operation so like they basically retire people and and just have a smaller pilot force to do a single pilot op thing so it might be something to consider you know if if you haven't been you know if you're not if you're looking at working there in 10 years per se but i mean right now they're hiring so many pilots and everything that which indicates to me that they're not they don't even seem worried about it. yeah they're not ready for it yet and the other thing is i think it's you know it if that does work you know, I don't think the passenger airlines are going to be immune from single pilot. I think for from zero pilot ops, that's going to be another story. But I think zero pilot ops is something as I flew RPAs in the Air Force. And I can tell you there is a ton of work that would need to be done to get a complex network of a major cargo carrier to mm-hmm. do completely unmanned operations. Like, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. to consider, like, how do you taxi these airplanes? Because, right. you know, like, you, you know, we had a stereo taxi route. A for, launch team. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to have a launch team. You'd have to. Have, I mean, it would yeah. be it would be a process. And, and, and the amount of bandwidth that it requires, too, would cost probably more than That's just true. staffing the, the airplanes with pilots. So I think single pilot is I think single pilot yeah. is probably more likely than dual pilot or than zero pilot. But. If, if that does, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to fire half the pilots. I think they're going to phase it in. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, hmm. you know, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily worried about it or scared of it, but, uh, I think that like we see with, you know, self-driving cars now, which don't really exist in any, in any real sense, uh, the, the technology right. interface just isn't, uh, it isn't there yet. And it's probably not going to be there for a long time because there's just a lot of things that even with the best technology that we have now requires so much human oversight when when there are when there's like freezes, jams, whatever, or, or just, you know, mm-hmm. whatever to whatever extent that AI is 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 here or, you know, whatever level of technology that we have, it still doesn't have the nuance that the human brain has. And what I like to think about in aviation is assessing what we see out the window when we're flying in terms of weather, because I think we've probably all used weather radar where you're, you're moving the radar up and down. And you're like, like, it's not really showing me anything, but you can see a towering That's a nimbus point. in front of you. And you're like, well, I don't want to fly through that. But, you know, 
Right. That, that's something I think that the, the technology mm-hmm. is quite a ways away from is having the 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 experience and the the nuance to discern between little details, especially in the visual world, but also having the ability to uh, come to solutions based on a mm-hmm. huge array of parameters, because, you know, there isn't a QRH for every situation. I think we all learn that in training, right? So you have to use your intuition and your experience to troubleshoot certain issues that just there's no checklist for. And while that's, you know, 0.1% of aviation, because everything is so safe and reliable now, it's still there. It's still part Mm of uh, uh, everyday flying. And uh, yeah, to, to go down to one pilot, yeah, probably in our lifetime, but I just don't see it ever going down to a remote situation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. The other long pole in the tent is the FAA, right? I mean, they're not going to just turn this on right, right. away. That, that's going to take a lot of time to get approved. And I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, Stephen brought up some great points. And, and I think those are the things that the heads in the FAA are going to be like, do I want to put my rubber stamp mm-hmm. on something that could lead to an accident, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, exactly. And for what? To save some money? Yeah. You know, because that, that's the end goal, to save money on pilot costs. Yeah. One more thing before I go. I got—I just got a text message from my buddy. Uh, he he got he checked the uh, the performance tables on the 400. So a uh, landing oh. weight of uh, 400,000 pounds on the 747-400, the V-Ref is 121, 121 knots. Oh that's crazy wait for <laughs> hold on you, you said 400 I'm, I'm curious i want to compare this to a dc 10 four yeah four thousand pounds which would be pretty close to like your minimal you know empty airplane with a with a, a minimum amount of fuel it's like 172 or so on the kc10 right <laughs> 400 it would be 151 at 35 flap or 46 at, what at 50 <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. That's so slow. Oh my god, that's yeah, I told that, you it's, it's the best yeah, airplane. It's the best that's airplane. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, those, it's those lifty wings. Yeah, yeah. Those lift it's the lifty. <laughs> so lifty. The yeah, the the lifty. The lifties. But before we go, just real quick, you know, I was expecting a different experience. Like you guys are both very sociable and you know, fun to talk to. And I always assume that cargo people. <laughs> no, I'm I'm sorry. No, I mean, see, this is a learning experience. This is going to be our longest episode. <laughs> no, no, with two we, cargo we just I know. passengers. We don't hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I always assume that cargo pilots are probably cargo people in general. People who work for cargo airlines kind of keep to themselves, and they don't really talk. But if you love, it just shows. If you love aviation, you love talking yeah. about it, regardless if you're a corporate pilot who we just had, or cargo cargo pilots today, or to uh airline guys like me and me and doug well now <laughs> matt and steve <laughs> thanks for joining us it was great having you both on do you guys have anything else you you want to share they can reach out to us uh okay i just appreciate awesome. you guys having having us on this was fun and uh i don't know if you're able if any of your listeners actually wanted to get a hold of me to ask any questions at all about the cargo world they can reach out to you and you can forward them my email. That's fine. I, I love, I love yeah. talking to people about this stuff. So. Yep. Same same here. Thank you both for sharing some insight into the cargo world. Check out some of their cargo photos on this week's episode post at www.nexttripnetwork.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Next Trip Podcast. 
Please let your friends know about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel. Thanks to all of our listeners for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. Visit nexttripnetwork.com for information about previous episodes, trip reviews, aviation photos, and other aviation-related content. This is your show, so search for The Next Trip on Twitter and let Doug and Drew know what you want to talk about. Not on Twitter? You can also email them at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com. Please consider leaving a review wherever you download your podcasts. It will help other listeners like you discover this show. Uh, yeah, so, um, um, so, so, uh, 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 all right, so, uh, 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 um, and, um, so, uh, okay, so, um, but, uh, so, but, uh, you know, and, but, um, right, so, yep, so, uh, and, uh, so, um, you know, like, and, uh, it was, uh, so I, uh, because when they, you know, uh so uh so um uh uh so uh yeah um so so you know and and um 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 and and sweet thank you guys and uh